This is Garen Du, and you're listening to Eat My Pagan Ass Podcast. It's just for pagans. It's called Eat My Pagan Ass. Comedy and delicious. A pagan podcast that's called Eat My Pagan Ass. It's silly funny, like ha ha funny. If you don't like it, well, you can eat my pagan ass. Hey everybody, this is Luckylicious with Eat My Pagan Ass Podcast, and I am broadcasting to you live from Between the Worlds Festival, uh, a gay men's spiritual pagan retreat a week long in southern Ohio, and I'm sitting here with a very special guest. His name is Michael Lloyd, a.k.a. Garen Dew. He is uh, one of the co-founder of the Between the Worlds Festival. He's also author of the soon-to-be-published Bull of Heaven, The Mythic Life of Eddie Bozinski, and The Rise of the New York Pagan. He's Minos of the Minoan Brotherhood uh, of, of a, what do you call it, a grove or a... Uh, a grove. A, a temenos is uh, the old Greek word for grove. Okay. So, so he's, he's Minos Hesperos, based out of Columbus, Ohio, in the Minoan Brotherhood, which is a, 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 um, a gay spiritual path. Um, and we're going to talk more about that. And he's also got um, a lot of experience, as I, as I just learned, um, doing community uh, broadcasting and interviews for the gay and lesbian, transgendered, queer community based out of Cincinnati. So to no further ado, I'd like to welcome you. Thanks, Karen Du, for being on the show. And thank you for having me. I uh, appreciate that. Well, I haven't had you just yet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's between the worlds and anything is possible here. <laughs> anything, anything can happen. Yes, that's true. So um, before, I mean, there's so much that I want to talk about, uh, but let's start with you, you know, and let's start with you and who you are and how you came to paganism and uh, all in 20 words or less. Go. In 20 words or less. (laughs) uh, Chemical engineer, I work in uh, risk management, uh, security, anti-terrorism and emergency management. Grew up on a farm. Uh, have always been close to nature and uh, have always held that close to my heart and uh, flirted with uh, Christianity for a while in college and shortly thereafter decided it wasn't my cup of tea. And uh, When you say flirt with Christianity, would you like go up to the priests and wink at them? Or what does that mean? <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I dabbled a bit in Roman Catholicism, decided that it just was far too stodgy for me and it didn't reflect reality. Um, and I tried the uh, Presbyterian route, didn't like that either. Um, I tend to be uh, a lover of ancient history. And so uh, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Romans all appeal to me, always have since I was very young. So... I started looking back, uh, trying to understand um, what my connection with those energies might be, uh, and I eventually, you know, fell into neo paganism in the, uh, well, my gosh, that would have been the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. What was what was the neo pagan world like at that time? Well, uh, it actually exploded in the 1980s. I mean, if you go back in history, um, neo-paganism as a movement didn't really begin in the United States until the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, with the Beat Generation and with uh, the hippie movement. Um, 
we started getting an influx of all this different stuff in the United States. Um, the immigration laws changed in 1963, I think it was, and a lot of Afro-Carib practitioners began coming into the United States, bringing Santeria and Condoble. Now, these things were present, but they were present in small enclaves, you know, particularly in the Miami area in uh, New Orleans. But a lot of that began just flowing into um, uh, New York City. Uh, so uh, you started seeing a lot more of that influence in the neo-pagan community. Um, but Gardnerian witchcraft came into play uh, strongly in 1964. Uh, Wicca followed shortly on its, Wicca with two C's, followed shortly on its heels. And uh, publishing began uh, recognizing that there was a, a clamor for books along that line. And so uh, we started seeing a, a, a great increase in uh, neo-pagans in the United States. Um, Church of Eternal Source was founded in the early 1960s. Church of All Worlds in 66, 67, even, you know, the Church of Satan was, I think, 66, uh, so. That's with Anton LaVey? That is Anton LaVey's group. So. My grandmother was actually a part of that. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Gr- Granny Licia, she's crazy. <laughs> That's wild. A lot Did of- you read that in the Satanic Bible, the Anton LaVey? It's right there. It's right th- I wrote that. I initiated Anton LaVey. You initiated Anton LaVey. I, I not only initiated him, I gave birth to him. I would I, I caught the cord and named him Anton. She's probably she she probably claimed to have been part of even like I brought the immigrants up to, you know, New York City and taught them how to teach others. Oh, even another grandmother story. <laughs> Lovely. So there were quite a few of them floating around out there. So for you in and you were at this time still in the Midwest when you you said that you came to paganism, or were yeah, you in New York? Yeah, I'm an Ohio native, so I've been, except for my short stint in uh, my undergraduate degree, uh, I've been in Ohio my entire life. I just learned that Buckeye is a nut. It is. Or produces a nut. I yeah, <clears throat> it's the uh, it's the state uh, state nut or whatever. It's not edible, though. What are its magical properties? Go. <laughs> <laughs> You can lob them at Republicans and they will fall down. <laughs> I'll take a bag full. Thanks. <laughs> no charge. So, so what was your first, uh, what was your first pagan experience then? It actually, uh, was in, uh, oh gosh. I, I guess was... organized pagan. That's what I mean. Right? Well, I mean, I, <clears throat> one can look at, uh, when I was a kid, I actually, this is kind of funny. I, uh, I wanted to go to uh, Cedar Point with my friends, and my dad had plans for us to work on the farm all weekend long. He had projects he wanted us to do. So I did a little spell to, uh, I wanted it to rain so we couldn't do any any projects so that maybe, you know, we could go to Cedar Point. Well, That's an amusement park, right? That is. That's an amusement park on uh, Lake Erie. I think the largest in the U.S., I don't know that, hmm. but um, Disney Disney World's probably bigger oh. than that. Hmm. So oh, right, that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I uh, I did a little spell, and I you know I, I was screwing around. I didn't know what I was doing, but uh, I, with some incense and a pheasant tail and everything, I chanted for it to rain, and it rained all weekend. It was great, but my dad found things for us to do inside, mm. uh, and uh, nobody could go 
to Cedar Point anyway because uh, it was raining all weekend. So, so it's your fault that it, weekend. It was <laughs> entirely my fault. And it was the first lesson that I learned, you know, try not to screw with the weather for, you know, selfish reasons. So where did you get the idea for this ritual? I mean, for uh, however old you were to, like, grab a pheasant's feather and... I think kids invent rituals naturally. It comes to them. Um, I can't remember who told me this, but they uh, they said that uh, kids are naturally pagan until church and school beat it out of them. So um, I just did what felt natural for me to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm not claiming that I made it rain, by the way. I just uh, it's an interesting coincidence. Right. Sure. I think a lot of us have had coincidences like that. It's is it coincidence? We don't know, but it's interesting. And then, and then where did you go from there? Like, what would you say was your next big formal leap into the community? Well, um, I read a lot in the 1980s. Um, and in fact, my, um, my favorite author is Gore Vidal. Mine too. Oh my God. I I I love love Lincoln and Burr and and civilization. I, uh, I actually, the two, my two favorite books by him are creation. Oh, creation. That's the one. And Julian. I didn't read that yet. Oh yeah. You should read Julian. Creation's amazing. It is. It's a phenomenal book. I mean, if you want to talk about interfaith and, and seeing how all these major characters in history were all living at approximately the same time. And then imagine one person, the grandson of Zoroaster, meeting each one of them, comparing all of their different traditions and paths and teachings, you know, and, uh, and still saying at the end that he's not sure what is real, you know, what is true, you know, that to me is a, I think that sums it up. There is no one true way. So mm-hmm. that's very difficult for, uh, some, of course, religions to, bite and swallow because that's what they're taught that ours is the one true way and and that church down the street which is 99% like ours but is 1% different and really it's a it's a personal issue that I have with the pastor they're wrong well i mean <clears throat> you get these these uh, storefront baptist churches that uh they'll they'll be a two factions develop in them and they'll fight and then one faction will leave and take half the chairs with them and go find another storefront church. I mean, um, in my mind, you know, when people start um, fighting over the, the gift wrapping, instead of appreciating the gift, you've lost the battle. I mean, you simply are, are not able to to function appropriately as a spiritual path. Now, this isn't confined only to the Christian faiths, too. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we've had uh, witch wars, you know, from the very beginning in uh, uh, Wicca and uh, to a lesser extent other groups. But, I mean, uh, Gerald Gardner, for example, lamented that he his various high priestesses over the years just couldn't seem to get along with one another. And it continued after he passed, too. So... It's a shame. It, it it's counterproductive. Um, girls, girls, you're all holy. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like girls, girls, you're all annoying. <laughs> so I mean, in the 1970s, uh, I did a lot of research, particularly on the the New York um, neo pagan uh, community, to try to understand what was going on in Eddie's life and in um, 
the movement around him to understand, you know, why he did the things he did, why others did the things they did to him. Mm. Um, and it just seemed like there was a lot of, a lot of people that were concentrating on the power and glory of their various positions rather than doing the good work. been of strong cultural influence in many different areas and i guess the same is true for the neo-paganism uh, movement in the united states and then also the gay that the rise of gay pagans um 
And this is obviously something that you've devoted a lot of time and energy to. <clears throat> My, uh, I haven't had an opportunity to read a manuscript of your book yet, but I've heard, um, you know, uh, Osimvio talk, talk about it. And uh, he's shared with me that others have said that this is where, this picks up where Drawing Down the Moon left off, that it provides a, a more full picture of the rise of neo-paganism in the United States. Um, so I'm wondering um, if you can just tell us a little bit more about that and about the role of New York in the development of the neo-pagan movement in the U.S. Well, I, uh, I actually interviewed Margot Adler for the book, and Margot has written the foreword for the book. Um, and in, in return, you know, it was a quid pro quo. She interviewed me for the latest edition of Drawing Down the Moon. Drawing Down the Moon is a seminal book. It's one of those books that I think everyone should read if they want an understanding of where we've been and where we're going. I mean, it's a phenomenal book. I, I encourage everyone to read it. Um, I focus mainly on the New York City area because that's the area that influenced Eddie and um, caused him to you know, make the decisions that he did in, um, in, in, in the various traditions that he founded. So... New York is and has been a financial and media um, nexus in the United States. Neo-paganism, before that, the various uh, traditional paths like Strega, the Afro-Carib, um, ceremonial magic, for example, uh, has has had a, a strong thread through that that nexus for many years, going back to the 1800s at least. I mean, there um, there were uh, reports in uh, the New York Times dating back to the 1800s of people being arrested for practicing witchcraft or uh, uh, bilking people by scrying and tarot card reading and that sort of thing. So uh, Blavatsky uh, brought her group to um, New York City. Alastair Crowley was in New York City for several years in the the 19 teens. So there's a, a very long tradition of occult magical activity in New York city. It's, it therefore follows that it would make sense that neo-paganism would, uh, find a strong foothold in that area. Um, something that, um, I think a lot of people aren't aware of is just how important gay witches were, particularly in the late 1960s and on, uh, in the development of the neo-pagan community. Um, when Stonewall took place in uh, June of 1969, um, the Stonewall was the seminal movement, I think, right? In terms of gay people, fighting back. And it was the, the start of gay activism, really. I'm not the start, but the first very high profile instance of gay activism. Yeah, or we, how would you describe uh, it? We've, we've had, you know, gay activism going on in the United States since the late 1940s, you know, trying to push back against the McCarthy era type bullshit that took place. Uh, the Mattachine, the Mattachine society, um, Although it was faulted for its methods, I mean, they were trying to work within the system and gently pressure change from within. Uh, Stonewall demonstrated the uh, power uh, that was also necessary to push for change from without. You know, the, the society is disenfranchised, you know. Uh, it wasn't frat boys that were that were rioting at the Stonewall riot. It was a lot of uh, street kids, um, 
transgender, uh, drag queens, uh, people that in many cases didn't didn't have anything to lose by uh, having their you know their pictures plastered on the paper if it came to that. When that uh, riot took place, it sort of energized the community and said, you know, we have a power implicit within ourselves. You know, we don't have to necessarily work within the system. Working within the system, by the way, is very important. You don't change laws without using the system to do it. You have to do that. But having that additional pressure so that you've got it coming from both directions, I think, is critical in order to affect change. And so when Stonewall happened, uh, a lot of people... Uh, organized, they were pissed off, and rightly so, for how they've been treated. And uh, they decided that uh, the Mattachine way wasn't their way of doing things. So they formed the Gay Liberation Front, which was uh, a, a fairly radical, anarchic group of people. And the first facilitator of the Gay Liberation Front was Leo Martello. And Leo Martello was a well-known gay witch in New York City. He'd written several books on... Uh, tarot and astrology. He was writing other books beginning in that time frame on witchcraft and gays in witchcraft. And so, and he had, uh, by late 1969, early 1970, he had a column in uh, the newspaper Gay called The Gay Witch. So uh, he was a very well-known figure. Uh, The a certain amount of people broke off from the GLF because they didn't, they felt there needed to be more process to how decision making was made. They formed the Gay Activists Alliance. One of the people that was heavily involved in the Gay Activist Alliance was, um, uh, aside from Leo, Leo went over there too because he threw up his hands in disgust. And But one of the other people was Arthur Evans, who went on a few years later to write Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture. Uh, Rich Wandell uh, became one of the facilitators shortly thereafter of the Gay Activist Alliance, and he's now a Gardnerian witch. Um, He's the one who drove me up here. (laughs) And he's the one that drove you up here. (laughs) And uh, he went on to found the uh, uh, Gay and Lesbian Archives in New York City. So uh, this, this thread of gay witches or soon to be witches being involved in uh, the uh, the movement uh, is sort of an untold story that will be uh, illuminated in the book. Well, there were gay witches that were involved in, uh, or soon to be gay witches that were involved in the riots themselves. I tell the story of uh, uh, Max, who was uh, a barely legal um, drag queen that uh, ended up becoming a Welsh witch that was... Uh, in the bar itself when it was raided and was smacked around by the police. His story has never been told. I'm going to tell that. One of the people that became one of the elders of Eddie Brzezinski's witchcraft uh, tradition, uh, the the Welsh witchcraft tradition, uh, was in the crowd screaming at the police. So we've been around for uh, quite a while, and we've been, you know, part of the, uh, the gay rights movement since the beginning, at least since the modern beginning of it. Why, why do you think that our story hasn't been told until now? You know, it's, it, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of the problem is that um, the gay community in general, at least until very recently, has given short shrift to uh, the pagans with, in, their, in their numbers. Because 
in throwing out the judgmental traditions that they grew up with, you know, the Roman Catholicism or, or whatever, uh, they decided to throw the baby out with the bathwater and not not concern themselves with spirituality at all. It was all suspect. Um, I think that that is a, a shame. I mean, I really do believe that um, there is a place for spirituality uh, within the gay community. And indeed, I think it's crucial that we have that because um, it helps uh, humanize us. It helps, uh, and I think it helps strengthen us. Uh, it gives us some some purpose in life. Helps us to make sense of what the hell's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I think that pagans have, you know, been treated as kind of a, a freak sh- sideshow by the media too. I mean, the the straight community thinks it's all a, a big joke. You've got you know George Bush saying, uh, you know, when they were the big brouhaha over practicing witches in the army at Fort Hood, you know, he's like, I don't think that's a real religion. And then the, the, the conservatives trying to get, uh, like Bob Barr, trying to get it, the armed forces to force the Wiccans and pagans out of the, the different army and bases in the United States. Um, we've gotten a bad rap, uh, just because people don't understand and what they don't understand, they fear, and there's a certain amount of freakish sideshow to it. You know, we only get interviewed at Halloween, you know, and there's this wonderful story about Sybil Leak, who was um, interviewed by the morning show. Um, and they wanted her to stir a cauldron on the show and, and cackle and chant double, double doil, toil and trouble. And uh, she refused to do it and in the commercial break she re-educated them very quickly and <laughs> they managed to salvage the interview but uh <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah Mother, 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 mother,
So you've mentioned Eddie Bajinski's name a few times. Uh, tell us more about him. Who who was he? Uh, why is he prominent and important? And uh, what happened to him? And why are you writing this book about him? Or why have you written this book? Eddie Bajinski was born in 1947. Uh, he was a uh, resident of Ozone Park. His big claim to fame. Queens in the house. Queens in the house, definitely. <laughs> Queens, New York, folks, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> His big claim to fame was that he founded three different living traditions of witchcraft. He founded uh, the Welsh tradition in New York City. He founded uh, a neo-Gardnerian tradition called the Wicca. And he founded the Minoan tradition, and specifically the Minoan Brotherhood, which is a gay and bi men's uh, initiatory um, mystery tradition. The Wicca, that's the Wicca with one C, right? You yeah, yes, that's that's how he named that. Okay. Uh, it is, as I, I call it, a neo-Gardnerian. It did take the Gardnerian uh, Book of Shadows, which he was an initiate of, and he modified it along uh, some of the lines that were similar to uh, what Ray Buckland was doing at the time when he was writing The Tree. Eddie and Ray Buckland were good friends, and they talked. And some of the things that Ray incorporated into The Tree, um, limits on the powers and the term of office for high priests and high priestesses, uh, the election of them, um, the co-equal status of the high priestess and the high priest, so that there was no one... Uh, a central authority figure that could just basically smash any discussion uh, that was contrary to their views. Uh, so it was a, I think it was a great improvement uh, in, and it's, it's a lot uh, in, in many cases, it's a lot how co- covens are operating today. I mean, you, you generally don't see at least in the non initiatory uh, covens, I should say, the the eclectics tend to operate a lot more uh, in a lot more egalitarian way. Whenever you get one person that's in charge of everything, you can end up getting uh, power politics involved in the decision making. Things that are totally divorced from the spirituality of the tradition, and so I think that's a a good thing for people to consider is to try to you know put limits on that kind of power. You don't want to develop cults of personality. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to be serving people. You want to be doing the work, walking the talk. So, but Eddie uh, was a high school dropout. He was very effeminate. He originally wanted to be a Jesuit priest. Uh, He got gay bashed and thrown out of uh, Catholic high school and decided that uh, Roman Catholicism wasn't his path. He dove, He ran away from home. He dropped out of high school, ran away from home, went to Greenwich Village, dove headfirst into the hippie movement, which is, started roughly 1964. And for the good part of that decade, he was just uh, living the life in, uh, in Greenwich Village. Um, he eventually found it to be very sterile and bereft of um, meaning to him, spiritual meaning. He still wanted to be a priest. And in fact, he tried to uh, rapprochement with the Catholic Church after Vatican II was finalized, but it just, it wasn't going to happen. So he ran across um, one of Gerald Gardner's books, read it in one sitting at the Bronx Zoo when he went on an outing with his family and decided he wanted to be a witch. He looked up Leo Martello, 
uh, Leo introduced him to Gwen Thompson, who uh, was running a Celtic traditionalist coven in Connecticut. And uh, that's how he got his start. And it was in early 1972 he was initiated. Uh, he was brought uh, up to the second degree. And then he began doing something that Gwen didn't like, which was uh, adapting her materials to form uh, his own tradition, the Welsh tradition. As a result of that, he was booted from Gwen's coven, and he founded the Welsh tradition in ni- late 1972. Why don't you take a sip of your tea? You've been... <laughs> you've been uh... Chanting E-A-O and playing the part of Bacchus and doing lots of things loud. And, and, and today we've got a rainy day here at Between the Worlds. And so some of us are... And we also had a nice, wonderful party last night called the Comos, which I hope we'll talk a little bit about more later. So, uh, yeah, drink your fluids there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Eddie's, Eddie's big claim to fame was he, uh, he had founded these three different witchcraft traditions. And it spanned over... Uh, he first started founding traditions in 1972. Uh, that was the Welsh tradition. He founded the Wicca in 1974, and he founded the Minoan Brotherhood in 1977. Um, all three are still living traditions. They still have uh, practicing covens. Uh, the Welsh and the the Wicca, uh, mainly in New York City, uh, the Minoan Brotherhood, and then shortly thereafter, uh, the Minoan Sisterhood, which uh, Eddie gave the starting materials to um, Lady Rhea and Lady Miu Sekmet, uh, Carol Bulzon, And they founded the Minoan Sisterhood, which was the female side of that tradition. So together, the Minoan Brotherhood and the Minoan Sisterhood found what we call the the Minoan tradition today. Um, Eddie ended up leaving the public face of witchcraft in uh, 1981. He got his GED, um, went on to Hunter College where he uh, graduated with Phi Beta Kappa with a degree in classics and history, Uh, won the first Mellon Scholarship, which gave him a full ride to graduate school. His early advisor at Hunter was a wonderful uh, anthropologist and classicist named uh, Clarive Granjuan, very famous in the New York City area. And she had hoped that Eddie would go on to Bryn Mawr, which was her alma mater. Eddie applied for and was accepted at Bryn Mawr College. And uh, he graduated in May of 1988 with a degree in classical and Near Eastern archaeology. Um, But he was HIV positive and diagnosed in 1987 and in... uh, March of 1989, he passed away from complications due to AIDS. So it's a very sad story, but it's also an interesting one because he managed to pack so much of this stuff into such a short life. Um, but Eddie himself, his name isn't well known outside of the various traditions that he founded. And I think it's important. I use his life as a, a framework on which to tell the larger story of the movement in uh, New York City, the, the neo-pagan movement, because I think it's such a fascinating life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was such a contradictory character in some ways, but he was uh, a brilliant man who was a great teacher. His uh, 
fellow students in college, his advisors all said that he would have made just an extraordinary professor, which he wanted to be a professor of archaeology. And I think it's a shame, you know, that it was cut off so soon before he could achieve that goal. Because in particular, he was he was uh, really interested in Minoan archaeology and history. And I think that if he had managed to become a professor, I mean, just imagine how much life he could have breathed into that dusty material. Because it, to him, it was it was a living tradition. And so he would have brought some of that enthusiasm and some of that spark and creativity to his subject matter. I think he would have inspired generations of, of students if he had managed to live. Sounds like we lost our own graves, like our own generations, you know, Robert Graves. Or... I don't, it's hard to say. I mean, it just is really hard to say. Eddie, you know, Margo, uh, Margo Adler said that uh, Eddie's Book of Shadows, his Welsh Book of Shadows. She was initiated into the Welsh tradition uh, before she left, and she kept the the Book of Shadows all these years. And she says it's it has some of the most beautiful and inspiring poetry of any tradition that she's ever read over the years. And he was he was a really great writer. He was an inspired writer, and he was a. Uh, a gentle soul and uh, a very artistic soul. And I just, uh, you know, it's, it's so sad when we lose people like that, that uh, they, they never seem to quite get to that point where they are known. I mean, uh, Eddie was the Gerald Gardner of the gay pagan community. He really was. He, he managed to do so many things in such a short period of time that it's it's astounding you know it took me seven years to write this biography and a lot of it had to had to do with trying to unravel all of these stories that had gotten so mishmashed and mixed up um, over the years to try to figure out how he how he walked this path from one point to to another mm-hmm. it was just very very difficult to research but a fascinating story so it's not just a, a gay story. It's not just no. um, you know something that a gay witch would should go and pick up in the in the in the occult section. It sounds like a it's another seminal history that's going to change the way that people think about the origins of this movement in the United States, as well as give credit to someone who rightly deserves it. Well, one of the things that uh, this book is going to point out is. Uh, a lot of the conflict that came with that growth in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, um, there was a lot of infighting. It's important to the story. I mean, one person had asked me when I had started writing Eddie's biography to please leave all of the negative stuff out. Well, you can't. You simply can't do that because if you want to understand why he made the decision to do this as opposed to that, you really have to know what was going on around him. And so that conflict is part of the story. Uh, it's not meant to open up old wounds. And it's, you know, it's presented in a manner that says, look, this is just how it was. Uh, I asked Margot, I said, because uh, I was very concerned. I wanted, it, I wanted the entire thing to read as fairly to everyone as I could. And I asked Margo, I go, do you, uh, do you think I was fair in this? And she said, you were very, 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 
very fair in how you covered this material. Um, so I hope that people will look at it as a history. This is what happened. In, in one sense, you want to know how it happened so that you, in some cases you don't repeat it. You know, why, you know, why struggle with, with all this infighting when we've got so many people that are outside our groups that are, you know, that bear us ill will. I mean, it's just, it's pointless in some cases. Divided we fall. Absolutely. So that whole thing, you know, associated with the book, it's trying to, it's trying to tell the larger story because I basically decided early on, you know, as I was unraveling Eddie's life and trying to trying to look at it under a microscope I said you're just not going to understand why he did the things he did if you don't look at the larger picture and in some cases I'm looking at some of the stuff that went on on a national level but in many cases I'm looking at what was happening in New York City at the time what were the dynamics you know why why was this group doing this as opposed to that and so um, I think that's where the useful part comes in because I want to understand why you know the big question why why did why was it done why did this happen and does the book reveal that to a great extent it does to as far as that i could i've spoken to such a <laughs> diverse and large cross section of people and i've still got people coming to me uh even today even though i'm uh i closed the manuscript at second draft thinking that okay i'm about as done as i'm going to get and then Eddie's mother uh, contacted me and said, oh, there was this girl that lived across the street that was really good friends with Eddie and that she absolutely wants you to interview her for the book. And I'm like, well, that's the only non-family member that knew Eddie as a child and up probably up through to his adult life. And I really ought to talk to her to get that that other side of the story. So I'm going to make an attempt to to interview her next week and see how that works. But, uh, I mean, the, one of his advisors was the world's foremost expert in classical Greek sculpture. I talked to her. I mean, it was just fascinating. Uh, Larry Kerwan, the front man for the Celtic rock group, black 47 was, uh, he is a ceremonial practitioner, uh, in New York city. That was a student of, uh, Peter Lavenda's, you know, uh, uh, Simon, who uh, wrote the Necronomicon, you know, I interviewed him, uh, the Lady Rhea, uh, Lady Miu Sekhmet, I in- interviewed her, uh, Lady Vivian, the Welsh Witch Queen, Phoenix of Theos and Phoenix, uh, the, from the Gardnerian Long Island Coven, interviewed him, uh, he was extremely helpful, uh, Ray Buckland, Sally Eaton, uh, Doric Wilson, the playwright, shows up in there because I had questions on what was going on. Um, Billy Name Linich, who was Andy Warhol's factory photographer, I talked to him about uh, you know what was going on in the occult movement in uh, New York in the 1960s. You know, I just a fascinating cross section of people, uh, and I'm excited you know for people to read it because a lot of these stories are going to disappear if we don't get them down on paper. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how do you find time to do that? I, you know, it's obviously not your day job. No, it's not. It's not. I'm an engineering consultant. And so I, I have a rather serious uh, job uh, that I have to do in order to keep a roof over my head. The nice thing about that is it gives me the, uh, uh, the 
finances to to finance a book like this. I mean, uh, I've had to travel to New York several times to Washington D.C. once to interview somebody. Uh, I traveled to Circle Sanctuary to go through their their Earth Religion archives. Uh, I Llewellyn, uh, Carl Weschke, I interviewed him for the book, and uh, the Weschkes were gracious enough to invite me in to uh, examine the Llewellyn archives. I was the first outside art, uh, researcher that was invited in to uh, examine those extensive archives. What's, what's in, it's like the archives of the Vatican and yeah. the catacombs. <laughs> it's like the pagan version of that. What's down there? <laughs> A lot of first editions of books from the period that uh, that I was researching. Also, the Gnostica Newses. I mean, Oberon Zell. I contacted Oberon. He got me copies of articles from Green Eggs in the 1970s. Gnosticas uh, from Weschke, you know, from the, in the 1970s. I mean, in order to do this and do it well, you have to really dig. Dig, dig, dig. It's a lot of grunt work. But it's very rewarding when you stumble across these little nuggets here and there that have been buried for so long. Mm. It's just fascinating. It, I would guess that uh, from the willingness of all of these uh, individuals to participate in the interviews with you and contribute to this book, that the idea is well received. What what were some of their, uh, you know, how did you present the idea to them and how were you able to convince them that this was something that was crucial? A lot of people, you know, surprisingly enough, when they, when they heard that I was doing the project, they just dove right in. I mean, it's just fascinating to watch, you know, the, the enthusiasm build. Some of them, like, for example, Margot Adler, she had to be convinced. She wanted to understand exactly why I was doing what I was doing. And within one email exchange, you know, she was like, okay, Okay, I'm cool with that. You know, so some people took years. It took me, oh God, four years to convince Eddie's mother to talk to me. Uh, she didn't have objections to the uh, project, but she she still grieves, and she's an Italian uh, queen's mother, and she just still grieves, and it's understandable. But uh, eventually, uh, I convinced her, and uh, you know. I love talking to her because she just makes me laugh every time I, I'm on the phone with her. Mm. It's just fascinating. So for the most part, people have been very, very gracious to me. Uh, and some people have said no, and that's fine. You know, I, I understand. But uh, everybody else, I mean, you know, I talked to uh, Zanoni Silverknife, who was one of the co-founders of the Georgian tradition. Harold Moss, who was one of the co-founders of the uh, Church of Eternal Source. I mean, they're just very, very gracious with their time. Um, so I, I've had a great time doing it. It's been frustrating at times, uh, mainly because I'm looking at the stories and I'm trying to figure out how in the hell does <laughs> do I get a cogent story out of this mishmash of stuff? And, you know, in particular, people don't don't remember dates very well. So you and dates are kind of crucial to a biography. You seem pretty good at it. I'm, I'm impressed you're rattling off dates. I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, you know, it's funny. One of Eddie's uh, lovers, Benny Garacy, uh, when he has a question about what happened now, he calls me, you know, <laughs> because I've written it all down and gone over it, you know, time and time again when I'm rewriting stuff. So, <laughs> they, you know, they kind of use me as their resource now.
Σαφή 
there's some controversy around the publishing of this um, book by certain groups and wondered if you wanted to talk about that at all. I think that there are misunderstandings about what the book is trying to accomplish. I think the truth of what Eddie did needs to be known because if you, if you don't tell the truth then you are continuing, continuing to promulgate a false history and false history is one of the things that got Eddie into trouble in his life. When he uh, founded the Welsh tradition, he said it was a, from a book of shadows that came from Wales uh, from the 12th century. And it's totally bogus. It didn't. It was, uh, he, he utilized Gwen, Thompson, or, yeah, Gwen Thompson's um, materials. He added to it with the Mabinogian and uh, Iolo Morganud's uh, Bardas. Plus, he wrote a lot of his own stuff. And Margot, who was one of the uh, uh, participants in that um, tradition, said, you know, if Eddie had just been honest, you know, with us, you know, that he had written a lot of it himself, we would have been happy to go along. But he wasn't alone in this back in those days. Everyone was making up stuff. And trying to put an antique patina on Gerald, it. Gerald Gardner did of course a lot did. of that, I too. That now, there'll be people that disagree with that. But yeah. in fact, you know, we can trace where, well, Ron Hutton traced where a lot you know, of Gerald's stuff came from. Um, just not even, notwithstanding the fact that there may have been some stuff that originated earlier that we aren't sure about. But, mm-hmm. I mean... Everybody was doing it. Ed Fitch talked about, you know, the pointlessness of it back in the 70s. Uh, Guidian Penderwen uh, talked about it. Uh, one of the founders of Nematon, he talked about it. Um, so, I mean, the idea that you have to have an antique patina uh, and some ancient roots in a tradition in order for it to be valid is really silly. Everything started somewhere. Someone had to have put pen to paper, electrons to a screen, uh, a stylus to a clay tablet or whatever. Uh, 
at first. You know, someone had to have come up with it and set it down so that it could be transmitted, even orally. Uh, so that's not the issue. The issue isn't where it came from. The issue is, does it speak to the soul of the person that's receiving it? Mm-hmm. Is it doing the job it was meant to do? If it doesn't, then it for that person, it may very well be worthless. But for those who derive a benefit from it, for those to whom it gives me some meaning to their lives or uh, sets some kind of order to the universe or just provides comfort uh, to them, what does it matter if it was written yesterday or a thousand years ago? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So it's no more valid than uh, than anything else. So the book debunks some of the the myth and misunderstanding around the origins of Eddie's traditions. Yeah, there's a there's a certain mythology that's built up over time about Eddie. He's revered. I mean, I've I've met oh. people who revere him and, and revere his spirit, which is wonderful. Um, so I can see why they would feel, you know, if they had hard held beliefs about something, uh, how they imagined he was or, or knew him to be um, in their own perceptions, and then some someone offers a, an alternative view that that can be disturbing to people. I understand that. Well, it's threatening. It, it really is threatening, and I and I fully understand that. But that doesn't, you know, if you don't tell the truth about someone's life in their own biography, you're you're providing a disservice, not just to the community who wants to know what the hell happened, but you're providing a disservice to the person himself. You know, you, you have to be true to the history of it, at least as far as you can. And I've tried to be, I've tried to be as, uh, as fair as I can in the telling of this thing. Uh, you know, it's not meant to open up old wounds. And in fact, a lot of healing has happened as a result of this book. I mean, people who haven't spoken to one another for 30 years are now speaking to one another again they're talking about you know they're looking back on what happened and and they're they're finding uh that things aren't as horrible as they may have thought they were back then so i i find great comfort in that that people are able to find some sense of closure uh in the telling of this tale but you know, again, it's going to have some. <laughs> what can you do? Right? You, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, you can't. Uh, you don't want to. You don't want to make it a, a salacious tabloid uh, telling of the story. And I don't. Uh, this thing has got almost three thousand endnotes to it. I mean, I reference. Word. I was going to talk about that. You, my, my understanding also, again, having not seen the manuscript, but but what I've heard from others are familiar with it, uh, that you apply a rigorous academic, you know, uh, method to this. And there's like lots and lots of footnotes I keep hearing over and over. There are. Um, but yet, uh, some of my readers also say that even though they said they thought it was going to be far more academic than it ended up turning out, I reference a lot of stuff. And, you know, I say almost 3,000 endnotes. Many of those are going to end up going away in editing, I suspect. I'll fight for every one that I really feel needs to be in there. Uh, But uh, some of these things are going to be, you know, agglomerated or done away with because the editor just says, well, that's that's not really needed. Uh, But um, some of the people that have read it have said, you know, even though it's, academic in its research, um, it reads more journalistically. So it's actually a readable story instead of a dry text Mm -hmm. of 
facts and figures. You know, I, I really do try to tell the story. I try to tie all of this together. I try to go from one chapter to another and, and tie them together. So you get this sort of continuous story. And it's very difficult, you know, to be quite honest, because some of these things were, uh, these major threads were occurring simultaneously to so to try to weave them together from a chapter to chapter story without just completely and utterly confusing the reader was was you know one of my big headaches in this book mm. but it's it seems to have worked out well uh knock on wood right. so <laughs> awaken the fairy spirits within so okay so as i said before the book isn't yet out and you're not yet clear on the publishing date so how can folks who want to earmark this and and know that they they want to pick it up later find it well that's a good question uh, <laughs> i was talking to our keynote speaker justin elsey and uh he suggested that i have an author's page on facebook which i'm I don't want to offend any of your listeners, but I loathe Facebook. <laughs> I, I, I find it to be a lowest common denominator of society. But Except for Eat My Pagan Ass fans. <laughs> Except for Eat My Pagan Ass. So, uh, But I, uh, after the festival's over, I will put up a, an author's uh, uh, Facebook page so that people will be able to at least know when the book is going to be coming out. All right. Great. So uh, I'll make sure to link to that from the Eat My Pig and Ass website. I know we don't have all day here as much as I'd love to sit here and talk with you forever and, and hope, you know, I, we can speak again at some point. Let's talk about um, Eddie's influence on you particularly and how you came to uh, the Minoan Brotherhood and, and how you've continued along that path and, and how that has led to the establishment of Between the Worlds. I began looking for the Minoans in the uh, late 1990s. I'd heard rumors, uh, and you know, I'm dating myself a little bit here because it was an AOL chat group oh. <laughs> <laughs> that I was trying to find, you know, uh, something that was gay and bi in nature that would that would speak to me personally. And I kept hearing these little rumors about, oh, Minoan Brotherhood, Minoan Brotherhood. And finally, I just asked the question, does anybody know how to contact anybody uh, in this uh, tradition? And someone who was in the tradition happened to stumble across that and said, yeah, you know, what are you looking for? And when I told him, he sent me on to uh, two other people before I finally, I finally found someone to train me. So that would have been... Um, 1999, 2000, and then uh, in 2001, I was initiated and raised to the second degree. Uh, and then in 2003, I think it was, I uh, became a uh, third degree. I think it was 2000, it might have been 2002. I can't remember my own dates correctly. I can remember Eddie Brzezinski's. I can't remember my own. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I had founded Green Fairy Grove in 1990, co-founded, I should say, with three other men, uh, Green Fairy Grove, which was an eclectic Wiccan coven for gay and bi men in uh, Columbus, Ohio, um, in 1998. And in 2001... Uh, a new member who I had met in 2000 was uh, 
uh, he was interested in founding a, a spiritual gathering. And I said, oh, you know, a bunch of us got together at Pagan Spirit Gathering in 1999 and batted this idea around. We said, gee, there's not really any programming that speaks to us here. Uh, I mean, on a personal level. As, uh, as gay witches. As gay witches. And... Uh, or gay pagans. Gay dude. pagans. We, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the greater term. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, gee, it would be nice if there was a gathering or something that could, uh, like, pull together all these various traditions and, you know, everybody could groove on everybody else's ideas. Um, so it sort of sat dormant. And I I told Aya, Julian Hill was the, the other fellow, I said, well, you know, we talked about it, and here are the things that we had decided uh, needed to be in here and it had to you know it had to be for gay and bi men it had to incorporate aspects of every uh neo-pagan spiritual tradition we didn't want to exclude anybody and in fact we you know we actively went out to encourage people that wouldn't normally um participate in these things like the Norse which are you know they're <laughs> they are uh, notoriously hard to get to to participate in larger pagan gatherings because they just sort of say you guys you you're just not our cup of tea you know so, too fluffy bunny well yeah i mean so and, and you know it's that's cool you know but we actually got Norse part, uh, participation i think the second year but the druids and the the ceremonials and uh, you know we're trying to trying to incorporate it we had a uh, we've got buddhists that are associated with it and um so anyway, uh, 2001, he goes, well, why don't we just go ahead and do it? And I'm like, okay, as a project manager, here are the things that <laughs> have to be done. You know, we've got, we've got to have money. We've got to have a place to, to be at. We've got to have the ability to get insurance. And we, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So we began working. We, Julian and I said, well, well, let's go ahead and try and do it. Um, I actually... Uh, the thing depended upon me for the first three years for finances to make sure it could actually establish itself and become self-supporting. And after the third year, you know, it's like any business, you know, you give it three years to do it and, and it became self-supporting after the third year. So, uh, uh, 2002 was the first year and, uh, we had, I think 28 people actually show up, uh, some radical fairies from Chicago. And we, you know, we had, uh, aimed for a demographic that was, you know, within 500 mile radius of Columbus, Ohio. And we thought, yeah, that's probably pretty reasonable for, you know, a, a starting gathering. And then, you know, we had somebody come from Texas, you know, so that kind of blew that out of the water. I'm like, well, okay. Uh, the next year we had people come from Washington state and we're like, well, you know, this is very different than what we were, you know, anticipating. And what was really neat was, you know, it's all that kind of, you know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, we had uh, people come from all over the country. And a lot of these people have developed such extraordinary friendships that have been maintained um, outside the gathering. I mean, it's just, it's like, a, it really is like a community that has spanned the entire continent. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Um, I had my 50th birthday party in uh, um, a couple of years, well, three years ago, and they gave me a surprise party, and I walked into the restaurant in uh, Columbus, and there were people from Erie, Pennsylvania, and uh, 
uh, Southern Illinois and Akron and Cleveland. And I'm like, <laughs> they'd come in, you know, it was that, that whole, that whole community thing had come together. It was just really fascinating. Mm-hmm. We've had relationships develop where people have met here, have continued on. And then, uh, you know, I, I presided over a hand fasting at Beltane for, for people you know, that were originally in Pennsylvania and Illinois. And then now, now they're, you know, in housekeeping together in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to describe if you haven't been in a setting like this, just how important community is. We're, we're monkeys, you know, at our heart, we're, we're primates. We, we need community. We evolved for community and community evolved with us. And it's, it's so important, even if you're an eclectic and a uh, solitary, you know, you're practicing alone, which is cool. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it's a nice it's it's nice to be able to actually uh, meet up with others and exchange ideas and form communities or societies or brotherhoods or whatever you want to call it in the loosest sense, uh, so that you can provide some support, some encouragement to one another. Uh, to have you know to have a gathering like this uh, and to have so many people. From all over the country. I mean, we've got people coming from Hawaii this year, from Manitoba, Canada. I mean, that's not 500 mile radius. That's a much bigger thing. And to have that kind of uh, dynamic manifest itself is just, it's so surprising. And yet it's so heartwarming um, to, to see the guy, well, at Comos last night, to watch all of these people. Uh, young and old, twink and bear, every single uh, traditional path, non-traditional path, dancing together to Lady Gaga. <laughs> and it's it's heartwarming. It really is, truly. Uh, I don't regret it. I don't regret it at all. Uh, this is this is um, this is the 10th anniversary of the founding of Between the Worlds, right? This it is, is, yeah. Yes. And um, I, you guys broke uh, your attendance broke 100 this year, which is a milestone for you all. That's right. You know, the first year, like I said, I think we had 28 show up. Uh, this year, it's 112. Uh, we added an extra day. We're finally we we finally became a week long festival, um, which. I was the one that suggested adding the extra day, and I've always been the one that argued against adding more time. <laughs> but I said, for the 10th anniversary, let's go ahead and see how it does. And we broke 100 finally, and some of the most phenomenal men. Such energy, uh, the scholarship, the creativity, singers, artists, writers, I mean, philosophers, mm-hmm. uh, dancers, drummers. I mean, it's just unbelievable you've got you've got um you've got some pretty big names here too you've got christopher penzak christopher penzak who's on our town council as our pr coordinator uh the arch druid of adf kirk thomas kirk thomas uh has been coming here for many years now alaric albertson the the, uh the writer yeah wonderful guy this is the first year in a long time he wasn't able to make it i think Someone told me he's getting ready to move, so 
Um, oh, he's probably very. Is he going back to Missouri? Yeah. Oh, he's probably so thrilled. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. Um, but it, it's just, it's an incredible mix of people. I mean, and everyone gets along. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's magic. Yeah. It really is true. It magic. really is magic. Magic is definitely the way to describe it. I've been to a few other pagan festivals, and this is the first time that I've been here um, at Wisteria. And also the first time attending just a, a gay or bi men's only festival. And um, I didn't know what to expect coming in. I've got, you know, lots of gay witch friends, gay pagan friends in New York who come to this festival every year and who have encouraged me to come. And I almost made it last year. I even filed the paperwork and then at the last minute had to cancel. And this year it was, they, they threatened me. <laughs> they, like, they, they threatened all of us. I mean, uh, Chris from, Oha- uh, from Hawaii and, and me, they were like, uh, you just make it work. You know, they were like, this is it. You know, this, this is do or die time, Lucky. And uh, I'm just so grateful to them for, for putting that pressure on me and, you know, getting my butt in gear. Because uh, it's easy to not make the time for sacred space and sacred community in our lives. It's just, it's just so much easier to go along with the regular and not cause any waves or not make any sacrifices. And this time um, I knew, okay, well, it's a bad time at work, right? But it's always a bad time. So I'm going to do something good for Lucky, at least. And if I have to bring a little work with me, which I did the first two days, uh, you have internet access here at Cafina's. I was able to find a phone signal somewhere eventually on the land. <laughs> and I was able to do what I had to do. And and, and uh, yesterday was the first full free day that I had. And I mean, just from day one, though, it's been wonderful. Um, I I volunteered to be in the opening night um, Between the World's Players performance. (laughs) I didn't have any speaking lines. That's great because I couldn't, (laughs) frankly, handle memorizing anything. I was so busy at work. And uh, but I got a chance to be part of a of a an amazing experience. That's almost like it's just like from a movie, like where bunch of gay men throw a show together in the woods and like with costumes and you know I've got a barn and let's just do this and uh you know it was it was an such a funny fun experience and then uh and then the the pan ritual the following night which I was a part of which um the New York City Gay Men's Open Pagan Magic Circle put together and performed for the community here was a powerful experience uh, for me. I never imagined that I would be dressed as a satyr romping through the woods, <laughs> bleating and eating grass in front of, you know, a hundred gay men. Uh, it's, but it, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And then finally last night, Comos, you know, I, I, I did it in half an hour, but I got up in drag. I had my pink wig on my false lashes and my heels. And I was down there dancing with everyone else. And it's such a full experience. There's such a diversity of experience here. And then during the day, there's great workshops and um, you know, just hanging out and socializing with people. And there's a, there's a little bit of flirting and you know, for, for some people. And it's um, just a joy. This is about being joyful in who we are and celebrating who we are. And I want to thank you uh, for organizing, the co- co-founding this, for keep getting it it's on its legs making it the success that it is and being you know this is your service you mentioned earlier that the the pagans in new york weren't doing the good work but i think this is what you're talking about this is the sort of thing you know where where you're being of service to the community eddie bozhensky told um the minoan brothers in his writings that um we were to be uh we were to serve our community Service is, uh, I think, a very important leg 
of any spiritual tradition. It really is. Now, you know, some people are like, well, I'm only, I'm only trying to help myself. But you know what? Again, this gets back to us being social animals. Um, it's so important to, to help others who are in need to provide that steady hand or that word of encouragement. I mean, I, I truly see, uh, the founding of BTW and its ongoing success as, you know, a nod to that service that Eddie was speaking to when he, when he founded the Minoan Brotherhood and said that we need to try to provide some guidance to the gay community um, in spiritual matters. And I think that um, this is one way to do it. That doesn't mean, like with so many of the Christian groups, that we have to go out and convert everybody to become Minoan brothers. That's never going to happen, nor should it. Um, that means providing that help and encouragement to those who may not follow your path too, just because it's the right thing to do. And that, I hope, is uh, what we've accomplished here. I think you have. Garen Du, thank you so much for spending this time and talking with uh, those who listen to Eat My Pagan Ass. I'm sure you've broadened their minds. You've given them an opportunity to explore a, a depth of the history of the foundation of their religion and their spiritual practice. And I know all of them are looking forward to reading. I'm just going to give you all the name of the book again. It's called Bull of Heaven, The Mythic Life of Eddie Bozinski and the Rise of the New York Pagan by Michael Lloyd, a.k.a. Garandu, G-A-R-A-N space D-U. And uh, co-founder of Between the Worlds, which you can learn more about at www.betweentheworlds.org. And uh, unless there's anything else, Garen, um, I, I, I would love to ask you to do your EAO uh, invocation, uh, even though I know your throat is so... Are you up for that? I can try. You send us out with a, with a, a call to Bacchus? I'll try and uh, do it softer. All right. <laughs> oh, E-A-E-A-O. Oh, E-A-Dionysos. Oi azagreus iai voe iai voe Thanks Karen do. Thank you. Blessed be. Blessed be. See you later hookers. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>